So, good evening. I'd like to talk tonight um, about a particular central aspect of our practice on the path of awakening, in particular, this practice of wise speech. One frame for the whole path that we often use is that it's a sort of a twofold training, that uh, twofold practice. On the one hand, there's a cultivation of wisdom through clear seeing. We, uh, we look very deeply to see and meet the underlying tendencies of our mind and our heart so that we can transform them. And through that process, we also come into contact with the habits of our speech and our thought that lead away from peace and away from our intentions through this clear seeing, this cultivation of wisdom. The other, uh, the other side, the other sort of core practice that we train in is the cultivation of the heart, which is, is the healing and the opening and strengthening of the heart. These two aren't really separate. The expression of wisdom is love, and it takes kindness. It takes a lot of patience and kindness to look and see clearly to support the growth of, of insight and wisdom. <clears throat> but tonight I'd like to talk specifically about this second aspect of the path, this uh, core training and cultivating the qualities of the heart, these very healing intentions that we've been practicing in the afternoons, the metta bhavana, loving kindness meditation and how central that training is in our speech practice, in our relationships, and our very relationship to life and ourself. So as we've been exploring and discussing, central to any kind of communication practice in our relationships is our intention, where we're coming from. Uh, And we begin to see, the more we examine, how the very ways that we speak and listen and relate are, are a function of and an expression of our state of mind, the quality of our heart, our whole internal world. And, and one of the benefits, one of the insights that comes through uh, very dedicated and, and, and consistent exploration with speech practice is we begin to understand and see the reciprocal relationship between the verbal faculty of thought and speech and our heart. We see how these influence each other, how our speech and our thinking is driven by our heart, uh, how like the atmosphere, the space of our heart is then also continually created and refreshed by our thoughts and our words. So they they rely upon each other and they feed each other. The more we think and speak in certain ways, it feeds certain moods and certain states in the heart. The more those states in the heart are present, the more it flows out through our speech and our thoughts. I think this is one of the reasons the Buddha placed such emphasis on uh, choosing the company we keep with care. There's a huge emphasis in the teachings on, on who you spend time with and spending time with people who have wisdom, who are ethical, because he understood the deep impact that we have on each other through our words, through our actions. And so when we spend time with those who are worthy of respect, those who we we look up to, who we value for their ethics and for their actions and for uh, the goodness that, that comes through in their life, that has an effect on us we begin to entrain with, with that, uh, that, uh, that frequency, or that space that's coming from them. So this training of the heart, this, tra- this uh, healing and strengthening and opening of the heart is known in the Buddhist tradition as... Uh, the, the Brahma Viharas, and I want to talk a little bit about each of them, just give you sort of a little context and framing about 
the, the teaching and the perspective on those and then talk some more about the practice and cultivation of them in our life and in our speech practice. So the word, these words themselves, Brahma Vihara, Brahma means heavenly or godly or divine. Okay? And a Vihara is uh, a dwelling place. A monastery is called a Vihara. Uh, a home, a house is a Vihara. So a dwelling place, a home, a resting place. So these can be understood as, um, sometimes it's translated as the divine abodes or the heavenly abidings. You can also think of it as our best home. Our best home. And uh, these are palpable. We can, we can feel this. It's a certain, it, it, it's more than just an idea. So when we walk into a room, uh, if there's been a, an argument or some tension, or you know, we feel that. And when we walk into a room and there's warmth and there's acceptance and there's connection, we feel that. We can pick up on it. So it's almost like a frequency. And uh, it can, these, these uh, states of mind and intention can be experienced as, as a field, there's sort of a whole field of the heart that we open into that's, that's present, available, accessible. One of the understandings that, that I really find useful for the Brahma Viharas is, uh, is they're, they're the natural expression of the open, unconstricted heart so the open and unconstricted heart is this quality of, we could say, empathy. In Buddhism, the word uh, that's translated this way is anukampa. And anu means with or together, and kampa is to tremble or resonate. And this is the, this is the word that's used to describe what motivated the Buddha to teach. After his awakening, uh, he was contemplating what he had realized and thinking, no one's going to get this. This is just too subtle, too hard, too difficult to see, too profound. I better just, you know, let it be or it'll be vexing and annoying for me to try to explain this to people. And it's said that one of the gods heard this and came down and asked and said, you know, out of anukampa, teach for the good and the welfare of others. Out of this empathy, this resonance, sometimes it's translated as compassion, but I like the translation empathy more because it has a broader field. And the way that I like to understand the Brahma Viharas is that they're, they're the various facets or expressions of this unrestricted, open, resonant heart. So these, the four Brahma Viharas, just to name them, and I'll talk a little bit more about them shortly, the first is metta, which means loving kindness or friendliness, goodwill. And then the, uh, the understanding that I'm pointing to with this sense of uh, empathy as being the unrestricted heart. So in the sense of empathy, just the general orientation is one of goodwill, of metta. Yeah? Whatever happens, the unrestricted open heart says, may you be well. You know, may this be well. May this be well. When the open, unrestricted, responsive heart meets suffering, meets pain, its natural response is what's called in the Buddhist tradition karuna, which means compassion. And that's the movement to protect, the movement to alleviate suffering. It's the natural movement of the open, unrestricted heart. When this empathic heart meets joy, Meets, meets goodness in the world, its response is to celebrate. And this is called mudita, often translated as joy or gladness or sympathetic joy. It's the happiness that we feel for another, rejoicing in the good, things that are going well. And sort of the... Uh, when the open, unrestricted heart meets the changes and the ups and downs of life, the inevitable difficulties and challenges, the joys and the sorrows, 
the empathic, open, unrestricted heart stays balanced. There's steadiness, very wide, spacious steadiness. And that's the quality of upeka, which is equanimity. The ability to stay steady in the face of the vicissitudes of life, the inevitable changes and ups and downs. So we can contemplate even just taking the first, this quality of metta, of friendliness, of kindness, you know, to sense what would it be like, what is it like to have that heart of goodwill? It's a very basic, simple friendliness. The Dalai Lama calls it basic human warmth. And what would it be like to have that sense of goodwill towards ourselves? as a fundamental resting place, as our best home, as a default to come back again and again, a sense of goodwill. May I be well, whatever's happening. How would it be to dwell in that space towards others in our relationships? And when that quality is present, how does it transform our thoughts? How does it transform our words? When they spring from a heart of goodwill and benevolence, which is one of the guidelines for wise speech as we've been exploring. How does it feel to receive? Think of a time when a friend, a relative, a colleague, maybe even someone you didn't know, simply offered a word of kindness, smiled. How is it to receive that? How nourishing it is. How soothing and supportive it can be. How does it feel to offer? When the heart is unconstricted, when we have the space and the presence and the responsiveness to simply offer kindness, to simply respond spontaneously with a sense of care and warmth, how does that feel to do that? And how does it feel to enter the space where the boundaries between giving and receiving dissolve? I'm not giving, I'm not giving kindness, I'm not receiving kindness. There's just a field, there's just a space of kindness. One of my first teachers, one of the main things he would he would teach, he said, learn to be your own best friend. Learn to be your own best friend. I would be like to really take that in deeply. So I want to touch briefly uh, a little more on each of these qualities um, and then talk a little bit about how, uh, how they can merge in some way uh, through this uh, connection with the open, unrestricted heart. Um, so I just want to give some, some little examples because uh, we talk about the heavenly abodes and the divine abidings, it can all get very lofty, but really these are very, very earthy, very concrete, real experiences that we all have. Um, so just two little stories I thought of around kindness. Uh, when I was in my 20s, I worked at an uh, environmental education camp, and I used to have a big beard because uh, I was self-conscious about being young and wanted to look older. Now I'm on the other side of that. <laughs> uh, and, and I decided to shave one day. And I just shaved off. And I felt very self-conscious because I looked about five years younger. And, you know, uh, and I walk into the dining hall one morning and our director, this wonderful woman, this friend of mine, first thing she said, she looked at me and said, nice face. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just this very sort of natural, effusive, warm, accepting, like, hey, you shaved, all right, nice face. It just, it just felt so reassuring. I felt so seen and accepted. And it's like, yeah, okay. Right? So it's that. Or another example. Um, a couple of years ago, I uh, had the opportunity to spend some time with uh, one of my monastic teachers who was traveling and teaching on the East Coast. And we were staying, we were, he was teaching a very small retreat at a, at a farm uh, in Vermont. And... Uh, Every now and then I would need to go to his room to ask him something or get something. And so in the afternoon one day I just, you know, knocked on the door and 
come in. I open the door, and he's sitting at the table, and he's got a pot of tea, and he says, ah, come in, you're just in time for tea. (laughs) And again, it was just like, I just felt so welcomed, you know? There's no sense of of restriction or contraction or, or separation. There's just this very spontaneous, warm responsiveness to life and with an invitation, with goodwill. So this is metta, this is kindness. Kindness can look many different ways. It doesn't always come out that way. Um, Sometimes being kind means following the ethical guidelines of speaking truthfully what's useful and helpful, speaking affectionately with the mind of goodwill at the appropriate time, but sharing something difficult. So another example is very recently I was um, down at another retreat center training as part of my teacher training. And I was having lunch with the two other teachers, one of whom is one of my mentors in the program. And uh, we were chatting. And I was, uh, I was sharing something personal that was going on for me, which kind of opened the space for a little bit more honesty and vulnerability. <clears throat> and he said, uh, very, very gently and uh, very directly, he said, you know, Oren, uh, since I'm your primary mentor, I... Uh, feel some sense of responsibility just to let you know that some of the other teachers uh, have shared a perception of you as uh, being a little bit arrogant or conceited, and and they felt some distance or uncertainty in approaching you in that way. Can you see the kindness, the generosity? I I said, wow, thank you so much for telling me that. You know? No one, no one had said that to me. It wasn't news to me. I mean, I'm aware of that conditioning, that aspect of this personality. You know, we all have different things that, that form and shape us. So it wasn't like out of left field, what you're talking about. I was like, oh, okay, interesting. That's playing out. That's affecting others. But the generosity to offer it, it was said at the right time. It was said affectionately. It was spoken usefully, saying, and, and truthfully. And he was very, he was very sort of, clear to say, you know, like, I I may have noticed that I didn't make anything of it. I didn't sort of solidify that in you in any way. But very, very kind, very generous. So let's be careful not to have an idea about what kindness looks like, that it means being sweet all the time. Uh, So compassion, karuna, this movement to protect, to alleviate suffering, Uh, I was in the uh, at IMS recently in Massachusetts, again assisting on a retreat, um, a loving kindness retreat, actually. And uh, I was wearing this scarf that um, a previous uh, girlfriend of mine had given me. It was a very, very pretty scarf. And one of the other teachers said, "Oh, that's a beautiful scarf." And I said, "Oh, it was given to me by." A woman who broke my heart. We had a very, very difficult sort of, very sh- kind of one of those like shattering breakups. Um, and so I just, you know, I just said, just, oh, it was given to me by one woman who broke my heart. And her response is, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that happened. And it was just, it, there wasn't any pity. It was, just, it was just a very, very spontaneous, compassionate response. And I felt so seen. Something in me just relax. It's like, yeah, that was unfortunate, <laughs> you know? It just in a word, springing from compassion. Another example, um, I recently uh, contracted Lyme disease and another disease from a tick, which I've been working with for the last six months. And when I told a friend of mine who's a meditation teacher in our community, it was very interesting to see the responses of people. And some people, oh, I'm so sorry. And it's like, whoa, you know. Uh, and and um, this teacher uh, and friend of mine, when I told him, um, I'm going to curse just to warn you because it's just a part of the story and the impact of it. I told him and he said, oh, shit. That sucks. And he was just right there with me. There wasn't any sense of trying to change the experience or it shouldn't be happening, but it was just that just that really real, raw, like, oh my gosh. You know? Really feeling what I was Anukampa, resonating with, feeling what I was feeling. And in those words, in that expression, I felt so uh 
um, not alone in that moment, you know? And it gave me the experience and the permission to feel more fully that sense of like, yeah, this is scary, this is hard. Sometimes our compassion expresses itself silently. I have a very good friend who I've known for a while, over 10 years now. And we first met um, at a Jewish retreat center in uh, New York State at the time. It was Jewish spiritual retreat center. We were both interns there for the summer. And um, as part of the training, all of the interns arrived a week early. And uh, we did a lot of group building and sort of connection and so forth. And every evening we would get together in this yurt and um, three or four or five of us would share our life, like what's brought us to this particular moment that we're here together. And on the first night, um, uh, this woman soon, who was not yet my friend, we were just meeting, I think she started, or if she didn't start, she went very early on, and it dropped the whole group to another level. And she shared about uh, her father, who was dying of cancer, who probably had several weeks to live. And she was sharing uh, about her choice to be there with all of us as that was happening, why it was important for her and how she felt called to be there and how torn her heart was. Very, very moving, very deep, very deeply affected, all of us were. And, uh, and afterwards, many of the other interns present, you know, were coming up to her and saying things to her. And, and um, there was that sense of care, but there was also just that little bit of sense of um, almost like they couldn't handle it. It was a little too much for them, so they felt like they had to take care of her. There was that quality of the interactions And uh, I just went over to her, and I stood behind her, and I just stood there for a little while. And I just put my hands on her back. And I just stood there, just with my hands on her back for some time. And she started to cry. And that was sort of, for me, sort of the beginning of our friendship. There's just that kind of very deep, intimate connection of, of presence and compassion. Compassion can also express itself very forcefully. Sometimes we need to set boundaries to protect ourselves or to protect others. And it can be done with great strength, still coming from a place of compassion. We can say no. This is not okay with me. We can say no to help protect someone else if we're afraid that they're going to do something that's going to harm themselves. And the sort of classic example is a little kid running out into the street and you just you grab them, right? But it, it happens in adult life also. Do we have the courage, do we have the generosity to say to someone we really care about, you know, I really think you need to, I, I, I want you to think twice about this. This is dangerous. It's coming from a place of care, compassion. So the next quality of this responsive open heart is mudita, joy, sympathetic joy. I was recently up at uh, Abhayagiri Monastery, a couple hours north of here. Um, I have a a relationship of practice and devotion, and two of my dear, dear friends are in robes there. One is a full bhikkhu and the other is a samanera, which is a novice in route to becoming a monk. Uh, And I was ordained in that tradition as an acolyte, I guess you could say, in white for two and a half years uh, until until earlier this winter. So a very deep connection with that tradition in the monastery. And these two other friends of mine were all about the same age. And we all used to live together in, uh, in Berkeley and Oakland. And we would hang out together and uh, they started a little sangha together that's still happening, and so we have a history. And um, I felt so happy for them, seeing them in robes and just spending time together. Just so much joy. 
that the conditions are present and available for them to practice and devote themselves to their path in that way. You know? Just this free, unbounded, just, just, yes, you know? The interesting thing about mudita, about joy, is it can only arise in the absence of craving, in the absence of greed. If I want something that someone else has, someone else has, it's very difficult to feel joy for them. Sometimes, sometimes we need empathy for our own joy. Have you ever had the experience of feeling so excited and happy about something that you just need to tell somebody? You just can't contain it, right? It's that sense of another's heart meeting ours, allowing us to feel and to move through what's happening. And again, as with these other qualities, often this is expressed or connected through our words. We share about what's happening. The other person responds and takes it in. Equanimity is sort of the, the peak. It's the, it's, my teacher says it's tops. It's the highest. Equanimity is, uh, is the, the taste of peace. It's the, um, that balance that's no longer being driven by reactivity, by grasping for things, by pushing and running away from things. And so we can see this in small ways in our life when uh, you're waiting in line and you're very, very agitated and then something relaxes in you and you just say, okay, I'm just going to wait here. Some letting go, some equanimity. In our speech practice, in, in our relationships in life, you know, think of a time when somebody spoke uh, unwisely and you stayed steady. You didn't take the bait. And you said, wow, that's really interesting. What's going on for you? You know, how is that? Or just, oh, I'm sorry that happened. Equanimity. Not getting pulled into the currents of another person's reactivity. Not getting pulled around by the currents of our own reactivity. So these are the four sort of facets of this unrestricted empathic heart. And the vision of what's possible is, uh, is quite expansive in the Buddhist tradition. I want to read a few quotes from the suttas. Uh, one of the, uh, one of the uh, translations of the Brahma-viharas is the immeasurables, because they're understood as boundless states. There's no boundaries That's contrasted in, it's contrasted to our experience of contraction in the heart when there's uh, some constriction or judgment, which I'll talk about a little in, in a little bit. Um, but these are some of the words from the Metta Sutta, which is the core instructions that we have for uh, loving-kindness meditation. <clears throat> and I'll chant it because it's easier for me to remember the words if I chant it. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Right? Vast, vast. That's the vision of possibility for the heart. Here's another quote more directly related to speech. 
and connecting our practice of speech with these divine abidings, with these qualities in the heart, these, these beautiful intentions. So the Buddha says, um, monks, practitioners, disciples, there are these five courses of speech by which others may address you. Others may address you with words that are timely or untimely. They may address you with words that are true or false. They may address you with speech that is affectionate and gentle or with speech that is harsh. They may address you with words that are beneficial, connected with good, or that are unbeneficial and connected with harm. And they may address you with words of goodwill or with words of hatred. Herein, bhikkhus, practitioners, disciples, you should train yourself thus. Our minds will remain unaffected, equanimity. We won't be pulled into that current. And we shall utter no evil words. Not going to lash back. We shall abide, compassionate for their welfare, with a mind of loving kindness, without inner hate. We shall abide, pervading that person with a mind imbued with loving kindness. And starting with him or her, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. This is how you should train. So just imagine, I mean, he covers all the bases, right? True or false, timely or untimely, it's affectionate or harsh, it's helpful or not, it's coming from goodwill or hatred, whatever it is, to not be affected, to, to hold the other person with compassion and to actually allow that sense of goodwill to flow towards them and through them out to the whole world. Right? It's immense, this vast vision of the potential of the heart. So how do we get there? Yeah? So we've touched in on what these qualities are, on the potential, the vastness, this immeasurable nature. So um, I want to talk about three insights that I've found to be very supportive and very helpful for the practice of cultivating the heart, cultivating these qualities. And then I'll talk a little bit about the Brahma-Vihara practice, the metta we're doing in the afternoons. So the first insight is one that penetrates more and more deeply as we practice. And that's the insight of the malleability of the heart and mind. That our heart can be shaped and trained. And that the ways that we relate and experience are are continually shaping, shaping and reshaping it. So that the the heart can be shaped, it's malleable. And every single one of you in this room has had that insight or you wouldn't be here. If you didn't have the understanding that change was possible, that it was possible to transform the heart, why come, right? So that's, that seed of awareness is present already. Malleability. Heart and mind can be shaped. The next insight is that through this investigation of looking at how the heart can be shaped, we come to see that the most fundamental and primary agent, the most fundamental conditioning force, is our own mental action, our own intentions in our mind. That's the most direct and fundamental shaping force. It's the one that we have the most control over. Our intentions, our mental action. So the Buddha said, whatever you frequently think and ponder upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So you see both insights there together, the the malleability and the agent, the conditioning agent being what we do with our heart-mind. Here's another quote from the Dalai Lama connected more to the qualities of the heart specifically. He says, If we were aware 
that we all contain love within us and that we can foster and develop it, we would certainly give it far more attention than we do. If we were aware that we all contain love within us and that we can foster and develop it, we would certainly give it far more attention than we do. So the heart is malleable. It can be shaped and is continually being shaped. What's shaping it most directly and primarily are our intentions, our mental action. There's a very, very practical way we can practice this. A very practical way we can, we can begin to explore and tune into this. And that's to pause and check. Where am I coming from? Where am I coming from? Where am I coming from in my words? Where am I coming from in my actions, my daily living? Am I rushing to get this done, to get to the next thing, to get to the next thing? Is that what I want to cultivate? Is that how I want to condition my mind? In our conversations and interactions, am I constantly waiting for a place to jump in and insert my opinion? Is that what we want to cultivate? Is that what we want to condition? In our online communications and social media, where am I coming from? Am I trying to be witty? Am I trying to be seen? In our own internal dialogue with ourselves, we're beating ourselves up, we're judging ourselves, putting ourselves down, doubting ourselves. Is, are those the kind of patterns we want to reinforce? They have an effect. Where am I coming from? Where am I coming from? Very powerful question to pause and just ask, where am I coming from here? The third insight, and I don't know if insight is the right word, but I'll just use that because it fits the framework and sounds good, is um, the more we we're aware of this malleability and and see how our intentions and mental actions are shaping our heart and our experience, the more we begin to develop an increasingly refined ability to actually feel and sense what kinds of mental action bring harm and what kinds of mental action bring benefit. We develop an attunement to the feel or the tone of where we're coming from. And, and the question for this is just very simply, how does this feel? How does this feel? When you drop in and look and really, really, really listen inside, you'll know if this is a direction you want to go in or not. Where am I coming from here? Uh-huh. How does this feel? How's this feel? Does this feel like something I want to pursue? Is this something I want to cultivate? Or is this something I want to set aside? Something I want to let go of? So malleability, intention and mental action is the the primary conditioning force. And the sense of attunement that we can actually feel the quality of our actions. And those two questions where am I coming from? How's this feel? So why is this, why is this important for, for the cultivation of the Brahma Viharas? Because they rest upon this understanding. They rest upon the understanding that our heart can actually be shaped in this way, that we can actually um, um, transition or redirect the very momentum of where we're coming from and that that's done primarily through attuning to how it feels. That's going to create a lot of uh, natural interest because kindness feels good if you pay attention, right? So the practice of the Brahma Vihara is the first one that we've been doing. is called Metta Bhavana, Metta Loving Kindness. Bhavana is a very, very beautiful word in Pali, in the Buddhist tradition. Um, that means cultivation, sometimes translated as development. It also means meditation. But most directly, it means cultivation, like cultivating a garden. And so there's that sense of, of watering seeds, of cultivating. And that's what we're doing with the Brahma Vihara practice, the metta practice, is we're cultivating this quality. 
And that begins with recognizing the possibility, right? The presence, the availability of that space in the heart. So sometimes we have experiences in life that uh, make that space less available. We're hurt. Um, The brightness or the light that uh, naturally comes out of us gets uh, dimmed or trampled on. And it can become like like if you have an injury in your neck and you kind of can't turn your head to the left, you sort of forget that there's this whole sort of range of motion over there until something helps realign it, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, geez, look, I can turn my head all the way around there and see all that space over there. So the heart's like that. There's spaces in the heart that we forget. We forget they're there. And so the first step is remembering the possibility, the availability of that space of kindness, of immeasurable kindness, and working out the kinks, you know, working out the, the places where it's stuck or caught or snagged, so that we can access those places. And the actual practice that we're doing is is one of, of finding the thread of that quality. And this practice can be done with any of the four Brahma-viharas, with kindness, with compassion, with joy, or with equanimity. We're focusing mostly on, on kindness, but the process is the same with each. So first we find the thread of that quality. We just, just to touch it, what would it feel like? And that's why we use the image of a friend or a benefactor to call forth the memory of that quality. And we contemplate it. How would it feel to be welcomed, to be accepted? We touch it, we familiarize ourselves with it, and then through that touching it again and again and again, we deepen. We deepen in it, we strengthen that quality through the steadiness and the persistence of touching it again and again, coming back, may I be well, may I be safe, again and again. We strengthen it to the point where we, we begin to have some stability there. We're able to rest there. It becomes a vihara, a resting place, a home that we can abide in. One of the ways the Brahma-viharas are understood is as a protection. It protects the heart. And we see this very directly in our relational practice, in our speech practice. When there is kindness and goodwill and compassion, we're protected. We're protected from the ill will of others. We're protected from the confusion of others. We don't get pulled in. It's very important to recognize that, that metta practice, Brahma-vihara practice, is not another should. It's not about putting another judgment on ourselves. Now I need to be kind and compassionate and joyful and, oh God, I'm never... This whole Buddhist path is just, you know, I'm a failure, <laughs> forget it. It's just trying, I can't even pay attention to my breath, let alone all these lofty heavenly qualities. Uh, it's not about being nice. It's not about creating another uh, bar that we have to reach. It's about recognizing the potential of our heart. It's about recognizing that each of us comes into this world with an open heart, ready to be joyful, looking for connection, looking to be held and loved and to share love and joy. And the beauty of that coming home to the beauty of that. And the practice itself, the reason it's so freeing is that it doesn't arise from from creating something. It's not, we're not adding something. It arises from meeting our experience as it is. When, When we meet life, when we meet our heart, in our mind, on its own terms. In, in that space of meeting is the possibility for these intentions to arise. 
when we're not judging, when we're not reacting and pulling away and trying to manipulate or wishing it were different, when we just meet it, okay, it's just this way. It just feels like this now. It opens the space for the heart to say, oh, this is hard. Compassion. Or, oh, may I be well. You know, this is what this person is going through. Like, may you have ease with that. It arises from meeting experience as it is without being reactive. And just, just, just holding that space for the innate goodness of the heart to arise. Oh, there's so much more I want to share. <laughs> so... Um, I'll just share a couple of other things. So one of the one of the things that happens in that process, and Donald mentioned this the other day, is is a purification. As as we tune into this potential for for care and kindness in the heart, often what we meet is the opposite. We meet the places where we're contracted, where we're constricted, where we're tight and short, where we're judgmental where we're aversive and irritable. And that's, that's, that's part of the process of, of coming to see those and releasing them. And this is where those questions, where am I coming from, how does it feel, come, are important. When those forces arise, you say, okay, wait, where am I coming from? How does this feel? Not so good. Can I just pause with that? Can I just give that some space to allow it to move through so that something else can, something more skillful, something more helpful can arise? So we learn what contracts the heart, what constricts it, and then how we respond to that contraction and and restriction is what allows the heart to open, to remember this spaciousness, this potential for unbounded, unboundedness. Uh, one of my, one of my good friends, who's a, who's a monk now up at Abayagiri, he and I used to play this game. <clears throat> we would do these daily affirmations, and uh, it was a way of making light of our minds and uh, and sort of trying to bring some humor and uh, playfulness into the various ways we suffer, and so. Uh, we would go back and forth and sort of one-up each other and, and sort of name the various ways that um, these tendencies towards constriction play out, that this purification happens. So we would say things like, today I will cultivate irritation and annoyance. Today I will covet things I don't have. Uh, today I will criticize and judge myself and others. Today I will feed jealousy and envy. Today I will work against my own best interest and undermine my confidence and well-being. Today I will find new ways to suffer. Today I will harbor ill will towards myself and others. Today I will find fault with all that is happening around me. Today I will unconsciously cause harm to myself and others. We're laughing because we all know this, right? We do this. It's ridiculous. Yeah? But we need to see that in order to transform it. Where am I coming from here? These thoughts that are running inside this internal speech, is it springing from love and care? Or is it springing from confusion and fear? Is it springing from irritation and ill will and hostility? Do I really want to? Do I really want to rest there? Do I really want to stay in that space? Pause. Where am I coming from? How does this feel? Allow it to move through. So this is from the Buddha, who says, "I visited all quarters with my mind, nor found I any dearer than myself." Self is likewise to every other dear. He who truly loves himself will never harm another. Mm -hmm. 
this deep sense of self-love, not from a place of egocentricity or or selfishness, but from a place of understanding our deepest self-interest in care and non-harming, and then how that flows out. So the practice of the Brahma Viharas is a cultivation of the heart, of intention. It's a protection. And it's also a vehicle for liberation. By meeting these tendencies in the heart, by seeing them clearly and working with them and allowing them to pass, we free the heart from ill will, from fear and resentment, and instead abide in kindness. We free the heart from cruelty, from anger and hostility, and we learn to abide in compassion. We free the heart from greed and envy, from jealousy, and we learn to touch joy, celebration. And we free the heart from reactivity and from indifference, from numbness, we learn to abide with balance, with equanimity. In the texts, uh, it's called uh, liberation of the heart-mind through kindness. This is a very profound practice. It can take us very, very far in the path. And the very tools that we're using, the mindfulness, the sitting and the walking, the Brahma-viharas, our practice of wise speech and communication, they provide the awareness, they support the awareness that we have a choice. We have a choice about how we relate to life, how we relate to our thoughts, how we relate to our experience. And in that space is where freedom and liberation can arise. So pause, where am I coming from? I want to go in that direction. How's this feel? Allowing the space for the beautiful qualities of the heart to arise. So I offer these thoughts for your reflection tonight. And let's just sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.